gonna have some dinner. We need to have a meeting. We need to schedule the meeting. Dinner. 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 UK election preview. We're recording this on Friday, the 29th of November. The UK general election will be on Thursday, the 12th of December. So just a little less than two weeks away. You're listening to this probably on a Tuesday, which is our new launch date for episodes. So do keep an eye out for uh, new episodes out on Tuesdays rather than on Thursdays as usual. We're going to be switching to this new schedule for the uh, forthcoming future. Um, the future always tends to be forthcoming. Um, that's the way it tends to be. <laughs> anyway, so uh, this election is being talked about as the Brexit election. And part of what we're going to discuss here is whether it should be seen that way. Can you see it as a Brexit election if one of the parties, one of the main parties contesting the election is trying to downplay that aspect? Uh, just to give you a little bit of context uh, as to what the polls are saying, we, and just a and a little note here, we're not going to just be talking about polling because fuck polling, but also we're going to have to mention polling. Uh, Labour's jumped in recent weeks from around 23% when the election was called to, to 32%, uh, with the Tories maintaining around a nine-point lead. So there is still very much uh, something to play for here. Uh, the Conservatives' calling of the election obviously was opportunistic on their part, and we're going to discuss why they may have done that. Uh, but it also is not a foregone conclusion uh, by any means. Um, so obviously our position, and particularly uh, Phil and George's position on Brexit is uh, very obvious. Uh, they're the co-founders of the full Brexit, which you might want to check out. Um, but I guess my job here is going to be trying to wind them away from from kind of hard Brexit positions and asking them, like, really, really? But isn't that just you thinking that? Does everyone else really think that? Those kinds of things. So uh, let's get cracking. Uh, we are actually going to start with a, with the Brexit question before we run down a little bit what the different parties are proposing, what their positions are, before going a little bit deeper into the analysis, looking at what is at stake in this election. I think um, myself, I would argue, and I think the guys who obviously are more intimately acquainted with what's going on would argue that this is a very significant election which might lead to very important political and social realignments. Anyway, let's get to that. Uh, but first, is this the Brexit election? And Labour is saying, as, as trying as hard as it can to make it not the Brexit election because they have an ambiguous position on Brexit. Um, if they say it isn't, does that, re does that make it the Brexit election? Can it be the Brexit election if some parties are deciding not to fight it on Brexit? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, the other thing that's happened with the uh, Labour surge in the last couple of days only is the kind of crumbling of the so-called Red Wall, which is the solid traditional Labour seats in the North and the Midlands, um, and that they're uh, now looking like they might swing to the Tories because those Northern and um, Labour seats in the Midlands are all constituencies that are heavily pro-Brexit and that there's um, that they're likely or that at least that the Tories are making gains there in areas that would never have um, where you never have expected to see a Tory MP. And so um, it's not, you know, the simple case of trying to make it about anything but Brexit already. The Labour Party is pivoting in the last couple of weeks before the election itself. The Labour Party is being forced to pivot to make an offer to leave voters, people who voted for Brexit in 2016, because they're disgusted with the prevarication of the Labour leadership and also now, obviously, the fact that Labour's more or less swung behind Remain. So um, it's the point, I suppose, is the Labour itself is now being forced to talk about Brexit, which is what they wanted to avoid. And even, um, and perhaps um, some of our listeners already saw this, Owen Jones, in a truly breathtakingly cynical um, article that he wrote for The Guardian, somebody who's been relentlessly attacking um, Brexit voters across the country for years, suddenly making the case for how Labour needs to pitch to leave voters, the people who had been disparaging and piling calumny on for the last few years. Anyway, anyway, we'll talk more about that. But the point is um, that Labour itself, against its own better judgment, is now being forced to talk about leave because the Tories are making gains in its own heartlands. Mm. 
So yeah, just to pick up on this Labour Heartlands point a little bit, um, I think one of the big talking points or framing <clears throat> devices of this election, which has also been called the Brexmas election, because um, it's close to to Christmas um, and it's going to be it's going to be cold um, on on the on the twelfth. Uh, probably won't be snowing. Um, but yeah, so this this Labour Heartlands point. I was at an, an event yesterday, precisely on this decline of the uh, decline of Labour Heartlands myth or reality, and it was really interesting because it it c- came hot on the heels of a YouGov poll, and obviously YouGov of all the polls are maybe ones to be treated with uh, with a very high level of suspicion. Um, but it predicted that the Tories would gain four. Well, no, 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 because they're they're the they're, ones who've who have the credibility of having called the last election right, where there well, was a big upset. The MRP model, you know, just to get really into the polls, the MRP. It was the when they did it last time, it was much closer to the election. But anyway, um, the it, it predicted Tories get, uh, gaining forty-two seats, leaving them on three hundred and fifty-nine with a majority of sixty-eight. So the next day. <clears throat> Labour in this headline in the Guardian said Labour to focus on Brexit backing voters in final fortnight. So I think even maybe Labour is starting to accept that this third general election in four years it's going to be about it's going to be about um, about Brexit. And I think one thing which was really striking in that that polling was <clears throat> the class and uh, sorry the age and the regional um, divides in in the Labour vote. And so this was so 59 percent of 18 to 24 year olds, 40 of 25 to 49 and then only 25 of 50 to 64 and only 15 of 65 plus respondents said they were going to be voting Labour. And by regions, it's also really striking. So London, 52, rest of the South, 27, Midland and Wales, 30, North, 39, Scotland, 13. So North, 39, I think, is and, and Midlands and Wales. Thirty, a particularly striking results of, of, Wait, of so, that polling. So, George, sorry, just to jump in, but what can you just mm. sum up the the meaning of those numbers? Because sometimes it can be a little bit hard to follow when you're just hearing a bunch of different numbers and regions, which listeners might not be familiar with. Well, I'm assuming listeners are, are taking are taking notes and transcribing <laughs> this podcast as, as quickly as they can. But yeah, no, I think it, it's just that the Labour vote seems to be younger um, and London. But base, but London and then other large metropolitan. cities outside. Yeah, yeah metro. I didn't want to use that word, um, but yeah, metropolitan. Um, and then, and then there's the, of course, the class um, voting intention, which does it does seem that there's a really strong possibility that the Tories are going to attract more working class voters than the Labour in this election. So there's really a lot to play for because it's there's this possibility of of a real signal of some serious class realignment in in british politics um not to not to overstate it so yeah i mean it's it's an important it's an important election let's let's put it that way so the the points that you're making about realignment obviously we're going to discuss in a little bit more depth in a second but i guess in some ways that puts pay to the idea that it's a brexit election or rather it's not just about whether you have brexit or not or certainly what kind of country emerges post-brexit um but in, instead, it actually there's something more fundamental going on, which um, is a point we've discussed before, which is that Brexit isn't just about Brexit, but in some ways exposes underlying uh, fissures and transformations going on. So uh, in that regard, it, there's something perhaps beyond the Brexit election. Um, well, I, or, or it is about Brexit, but Brexit's not just about Brexit. I mean, right, that's, exactly, that, I think yeah, I think that's yeah. that's basically. Okay. It's it's you know it, it, I mean because so, some people are like oh Brexit causes all of these um, fissures as you put it in British society and obviously that's not true it exposes things that were were already there but sorry you did say at the beginning you were going to manage us and and uh, control <laughs> us and get us to talk about the right stuff so I should stop interrupting. This is sorry. this is what I this is actually kind of what I was trying to get at I guess is that mm-hmm. when we are talking and especially when you guys are talking about Brexit it isn't about like being pro leave or pro remain. Right. I mean, that obviously is an important divide. Um, but when you're talking about Brexit, we're actually trying to it's a it's a metonym for a much broader and deeper phenomenon that's going on that is probably too too little discussed too often because it gets resolved down to this kind of culture war between leave and remain, um, which um, I guess we can discuss a little bit more about why that why exactly 
it has fallen down on those lines rather than yeah i mean it it it's not i mean so it's not a i wouldn't say it's a culture war um because it's still political in the sense that it's still um i mean those identities are hardening um but um, and there are kind of elements of culture war to it but it's still very clearly political because it's still a period of political realignment um political parties organizing it has tremendous constitutional implications for the you know the very territorial integrity of the country in northern ireland and not to mention kind of internal arrangement devolution so i mean you know it's not something which is um purely about uh, people's sense of identity in response to other other groups in society it's still um it's still very firmly political um but at the same time it's true i mean it would be a mistake to think of it purely about uh, uh as if it were purely a kind of an abstract um question about whether or not you have a good trading relationship with the european union or just membership of some regional body it reaches much deeper than that but that also is part of the european union itself that it's it as um it restructures the internal configuration the internal kind of political configuration of states and so unsurprisingly that the effort to withdraw yourself from the european union has all sorts of far reaching political implications for um how the country, how a country is governed and how it is run so it reaches far beyond um the kind as if uh, the kind of very narrow limited question of whether or not membership of a regional body is beneficial for any particular country right and just to give it george a chance to respond cuz i'd cut him off earlier but no to just to take two I, I just... just to take two things which is that i mean one the question of it being a brexit election is that the case in the minds of citizens because i'm sure there's plenty of people who probably never cared very much about Brexit one way or the other and secondly if they did are sick to the back teeth of hearing about Brexit and wish the thing would just go away which to a certain extent is what labor is trying to respond to and trying to be positive about its policies and so on because it has problems with Brexit let's not go there um at the same time you've got Phil's already mentioned that labor has reversed its position a little bit or at least its approach in 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 canvassing in going out and saying well actually we need to re, we re, excuse me we need to rewin um seats where or re- regain our position in seats where uh, they voted leave so labor's recognized this i think the lib dems have just come out i think this is very recent news reversing their position on brexit saying no we're not going to uh, commit to revoking article 50 which is the agreement to take the uk out of the eu um, and instead uh are quote unquote going back to plan a god knows what that is maybe you guys know so George, you, it's, can, yeah, can you George. go back to Plan A or is that Plan C? <laughs> yeah, I think it's Plan C. Plan yeah. B? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean the the Lib the Lib Dems idea of revoking Article Fifty went down like a cup of cold sick. Nobody was particularly interested um, in that or and anything else. That just just for our them. listeners, that's a good British saying right there: "cup of cold sick." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no. Um, so I, I guess basically what uh, what I was going to um, say is that in a weird way, you sort of have the Tories and Labour both saying get Brexit done. The Tories and I think, you know, this is um, a point of a point of Phil's. So I'll let him in, expand on um, is quite depoliticizing this idea of get get Brexit done. But also Labour are sort of let's just get Brexit out of the way. We don't want to we don't want to talk about um, we don't want to talk about this. Um, and I think, you know, we could we could move on to talking a little bit about Labour's manifesto and some of the some of the things which they want to talk about um, instead. But I think the unfortunate reality is that it's pretty inescapable now. I mean, Brexit has become um, a, a lens for all sorts of other things, as I think listeners probably well know. Um, but yeah, but just to see it in those narrow terms, I mean, who what what know they have Brexit, who only Brexit know, you have to see the wider picture. Yeah, so let's actually run down the parties. I mean, we don't have to go into the details of the manifestos. Um, I'm sure you can find that analysis elsewhere. I guess, summing up for listeners, what is are, are the kind of main headline proposals and what are the positions? Uh, what is the general thrust of, firstly, the what the Conservatives are promising? Well, I guess maybe you could um, broaden... Yeah, I would broaden it out. 
So, I mean, whichever party, all the party manifestos essentially promise state expansion and more public spending, and it's a question of degree. Um, and I think it's perhaps most striking with the Conservatives because effectively they're promising an end to austerity, which it's a Conservative government that's overseen either in coalition with the Liberal Democrats until 2015 and then subsequently um, the Tory government itself. So it's um, everyone is committed to ending austerity and to enhancing state spending and in the case of labor more extensive state intervention and state control over sectors of the economy so um that is very much the end of the it's an end of a particular era and i suppose um there's great you know there's greater and lesser degrees of deception involved um because on the part of the tories there's a very it's a very clear and cynical attempt to um to buy off voters basically with tax cuts and greater state spending. Whereas for the Labour Party, there's this kind of um, bonanza of glorious economic promises that are supposed to drown out the fact that they're, um, that they're unable to deal with Brexit because they wish to um, have a second referendum and have the option to remain in the European Union. And their promises of economic renewal and economic transformation are effectively offered as compensation and to disguise this um, political uh, political betrayal. So it's striking, I think, that the what is clear is the crumbling away of neoliberalism across the parties. So it, like I say, it's to greater and to lesser degrees. The Labour Party is offering far more significant state spending and intervention in the economy than the Tory party. But the very fact that the Tory party is um, giving way on the grounds of neoliberalism, I think, is perhaps the most telling aspect of the election in economic terms, is that it's um, it's ended, it's defeated. And mm -hmm. it's still kind of, um, you know, it's still disintegrating and um, will take time to crumble away. But its legitimacy is utterly denuded and you can't make an, you can't kind of make electoral pledges around it anymore. That's the most striking thing, and particularly because the Tories are trying to win um, to compensate for their lack of support among the pro-EU middle classes who they're potentially losing. They're trying to make inroads into Labour working class votes, and doing that, they're making promises of greater state spending on infrastructure, defending public health spending, and so on. So that's the overall picture, I think, um, which needs to be borne in mind irrespective of the specific details in each party manifesto. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, so the Tories haven't really matched Labour's um, tree proposals, two billion trees. So that's what, what Labour are, are potentially promise, promising us. Um, Don't be snide, yeah, there's I mean, a lot not... more to it than that. More, well beyond the trees. You can't see the policies for the trees. I mean, that's the, that's your problem. <laughs> No, no, that's absolutely right. We can't see the policies for the trees. Less trees, more policies. That would be a good, that's a good line. <laughs> there that's you a go. terrible um, line. Um, no, so what, what, what I was going to say is that I think there's, I mean, if, if that's the, the sort of some of the dominant themes around Brexit and around, I guess, end of austerity and maybe neoliberalism's hegemony crumbling, check out the the episodes on the Nancy Fraser book club episode and the Runa Stahl episode as well. I think both of those two discussions are quite germane here. Um, there's a bit of a, maybe a sub theme around this, around a, an increasing divide, which has been obviously um, there in British politics for a long time, but between the kind of the metropolis and the, and the regions. And I think this Labour Heartlands de debate that I was at l last night, kind of struck some some chords here that <clears throat> basically if, if what, was this debate? what was this well, debate tell, tell us where you were uh i was in i was in liverpool yeah i um bravely ventured north outside of the m25 with my you know my my journalistic um credentials and trying to work out what do people really think outside of uh london obviously liverpool is not really representative of, of, of the north um so you're but like yeah. you're like an intrepid anthropologist basically going out among these strange tribes who are unknown to um the postmodern queer um intersectional uh labor voting 
EU supporting uh, metropolitan um, postmodern consumers such as yourself. I did get some strange looks in my kind of khaki shorts and um, shirt, um, just yeah, walking around with with my notebook out. You were wearing um, khaki wearing shirt and khaki shorts. Short. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a good no, look. That's, that's, good that's look. the kind Song of the. That's the un. It's the uniform of the kind of um, the classic anthropologist who. who did goes you have to a pith helmet? I I did as well. No, um, but no, I I had a semi serious point here. Is that there's there's this if there's this really profound disengagement or, or or increasing slip away from um from labor it's turn it's turning in a in a number of different cases in a number of different ways into a really um uh, a really deep and bitter resentment and i think it's not just brexit this has been going on for a long 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 time since the 80s um a real a real sense of a, a, an absence of working class representation um and you see it in people like Steve Hall's work, really interesting around the, the hatred of the liberal left um, and the the um, I guess also in, in the interview with Jennifer Silver as well. There's a there's a there's a profound disengagement, um, which has been caused, at least in part, the failures of, of Labour to, to represent the working class. Yeah, I mean, just like just as an aside on that, to make a more general point before we get back to the election preview, uh, more narrowly defined, it is really remarkable that, or at least it's making me rethink what I had thought about the past couple of years, because you have this resurgence of left optimism, or at least some possibilities there. Um, well, at the same time, that's coming on top of or immediately after a very long term disengagement from the working class from the left um, and the, the, basically the separation of the left and the working class. And that sundering hasn't, by all accounts, been mended. You know, that, that link hasn't been mended despite the resurgence of various left populist movements around Europe um, and North America as well. Uh, obviously, the Bernie question remains to be seen and there'll be more on that next year, obviously. But uh, it, it it's like... You know, you got, got excited. I got excited about Corbyn. I got excited about Podemos. I got excited about Syriza, and not so excited now. It must have been. It must have been a really hard few years for you, then, huh? <laughs> Snide dickhead. I was just exemplifying the fact that you know uh, that that th there's some deeper structural things going on here. That the enthusiasm for uh, these left populist resurgences uh actually maybe masked so yeah I mean, no i think this is i think i think this is important that the there was a massive influx of new members into the into the labor party there's it seemed to be bucking the trend um um of the kind of five six percentification of um european social democracy it seemed like there was there was some possible Abilities. And so it's I think it's an it's, I think it's an exciting election. I don't think it's a, it's correct to be completely optimistic. And I think there's some um, some potentially quite serious uh, belated defeats for the left coming up in 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 the near future. Um, but I do I do. I, yeah, I do see where you're coming from, Alex, that, you know, there's there's um, this at least positioning itself as quite a radical, potentially transformative uh, left-wing party with a with a um, <clears throat> a kind of anomalously um, left-wing leader, um, and so there are there's at least something seeming to be there to be discussed and argued about. Um, and compare this to the 2010 election, which was right. I can't even really. Re I was trying to remember last night who actually was in charge of labor at that point or what any of the policies were what any of the d discussions or debates were about and i you know it didn't leave a mark on my on my memory whatsoever what a what a what a dull time i mean i suppose it raises what alex what you just said about kind of um the gain you know the apparent gains made by the left the inroads since the crisis by parties like syriza podemos corbyn corbyn's um with Labour, um, how many defeats does it take before re fundamental reassessment of this of this political resurgence is undertaken? Because, you know, Syriza, as we've covered on this podcast, is um, 
basically replaced Pasok and undertook a world historic betrayal of um, of Greek democracy and of the Greek people before the European Union and has now gone to a well-deserved defeat before the old conservative um, or the traditional conservative party of new democracy. Podemos has lost seats in the most recent Spanish general election. And but now it's in is, government. <laughs> uh, you know, pop, well, but it's propping up, you know, it's propping up the traditional kind of um, establishment socialist party in government. Yeah. So the, they're not, they can't, they've not gained, they've not gained power as um, they've not replaced the old socialists. Um, and at the same time as they've lost um, their, you know, they've lost their credibility as being anti-establishment. If Corbyn is defeated and by judging by all the polls, you know, the most that he can hope for, judging by all the polls, is a hung parliament and the Labour minority government. And even that seems unlikely. If he's defeated, then how many, you know, what does it take for the left to mount a, a reassessment of its prospects and hopes in the last 10 years. Um, and then they'll basically be, you know, everyone, I guess, will focus on the American election, um, which Trump is likely to win. So in 2020. So it seems to me, perhaps, you know, to get ahead of the game, these questions should be asked now, rather than desperately clinging, you know, kind of, uh, as they're all knocked down like Skittles, desperately clinging to every last one in the hope that there's going to be some magic reversal of fortunes. I think the absolutely crucial thing is that we learn the right lessons from this. And I think this is perhaps the most worrying thing about the build up to the election so far is that it seems like there there are some worrying kind of anti working class tropes amongst some of the liberal left starting to emerge. Um, I mean, we've we've heard a lot of them recently, time and time again. Working class people are too are too gullible, and you know, see something on the media on social media, and then decide to vote for a for a populist. But they were all, always in, incipiently xenophobic and racist, and that's why they flocked to the hard right, um, uh, you know, project of Brexit under Johnson, and that's why we've got potential of a Johnson era. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's really important that we. <clears throat> that we actually have learned the right lessons if if labor ends up doing um not not that well and that isn't turned into a kind of rearguard anti-fascism saying like okay well the left can't win electorally but what we have to do is we have to make sure that we don't have fascism and that requires really doubling down on a negative view of the working class and saying well you know they're all actually fascists so we can basically say whatever we want about working class people as a liberal left and we can play into all of those feelings of disengagement and um, resentment so I mean that's I think the real risk is not the electoral short-term um, defeat but the lessons learned from it which will, which could well be precisely the wrong ones which would suck very well put I totally agree with that um, and we've had episodes in the past where we discussed how uh, one might go about encouraging uh, a, a, a yeah, positive learning uh, rather than learning the wrong lessons and you know blaming the media uh, look you're a left-wing party if you're an insurgent party and you're proposing radical transformation the media is going to be against you that's has to be taken yeah. as read it cannot be something which uh, you come to discover and decide that the the playing ground was the that was not level and that you were treated unfairly that that is the game that is the game there to be won uh, and so I think that this sort of combination of cynicism and naivety that goes in with blaming the media, I think, is really tragic and should be avoided. That said, I don't think we should pronounce death before we pass through the decisive moment. So before um, writing off Labour's chances and deciding that this is uh, the defeat of Corbynism, um, let's wait and see. And actually, let's uh, examine what uh, might happen and maybe also at the very end venture some predictions so uh, with that in mind firstly what's at stake George you already discussed a little bit uh, the questions of uh, realignments um, I did want to take a, a quick moment mm -hmm. just to finish off on the the other political parties um, so we can provide maybe a little bit of insight into what's going on there two parties have positioned themselves as the most uh, extreme and forthright on the Brexit question. So on the one hand, you have the Liberals, the Lib Dems, who became the party of Remain and actually surged in the polls for a little while um, off the back of that, though they, as we've just discussed, they've now <laughs> seemed to have reversed that position and quote unquote, gone back to plan A. Um, so they, they've obviously uh, 
felt that not working. Probably their own private polling has indicated that you pull back from this. Um, and they don't really seem to have very much going for them other than being what they've always been, which is the party of the middle class. Um, that said, you know, they're still maintaining around, you know, something like 14% in the polls. So that's not going away. Um, in fact, one of the weird ironies of this whole Brexit process is that it has resuscitated the Lib Dems who were otherwise uh, dead. It seemed like Britain was bucking a kind of global or at least kind of uh, European trend and going back to like two main political parties, the left and the right, facing off against each other. And then suddenly Brexit has, and especially Labour's prevarication on Brexit, uh, seems to have thrown the whole thing into disarray and the Lib Dems have surged back, uh, being the party of Remain. But they're they're being stubbornly resistant. You know, they're still, uh, yeah, polling around 14%. And meanwhile, and obviously, guys, add in anything you like to this, you've got the Brexit party, which surged as well, uh, only to really die off recently, and it's polling uh, in the low single digits. Uh, maybe about five percent is probably the highest they're polling. Uh, yeah, and they've I mean, and they've completely they've, folded, right? They've, I mean, they folded because yeah, they're not they contesting. They're not contesting conservative uh, seats or seats where the conservatives are likely to win. They've given the conservatives a free pass there and decided to only contest Labour, uh, you know, quote unquote heartland seats where. Um, Leavers there are disgruntled with Labour's positioning and, uh, you know, considering voting for Brexit Party where the Conservatives don't have a chance. Yeah, it crumpled any... Um, I mean, what was interesting was the Brexit Party actually has some... or had, you know, it's some decent political proposals in its manifesto, um, abolishing the House of Lords, which would be a tremendous, I mean, um, step forward for British democracy in which it's been struggling with for 20, 20 years more. Um, introducing proportional representation, um, that any MP who switched parties would be subject to instant um, an instant by-election, greater powers of recall for constituents. Uh, the you know these are um, these are actually solid you know I mean not uh, earth-shaking but solid democratic proposals. Um, and the fact that the Brexit Party essentially folded, like you said, Alex, um, you know, it could have at least said, you know, say um, only contested against Remain MPs, MPs who strongly yeah. supported the European Union, um, independently of what party they stood, they could have done that. Instead, they've effectively acted as outriders for the Tories. Mm. And unsurprisingly, um, you know, they've lost their any um, of their political, um, whatever political insurgency that they might have been able to launch into the established political system that's been neutered effectively contained and absorbed into um into the tory party so there's nothing left nothing left of that challenge um and it's uh, i suppose what's striking is that it's still more or less uh, a contest between the two major parties with um, with the Lib Dems still kind of struggling as the third party. It's still in some many ways um, a traditional contestation, though in circumstances that are radically different. Just really quickly on this, if you remember back to when the election was called and around that, that time, I think one of the key questions that people were asking was, will the Brexit party split the Tory vote? I mean, is this going to be Labour's potential route to power and that? That didn't that didn't happen. I mean, as Phil put it, yeah, the <clears throat> Brexit Party ended up being basically a, a pressure group on um, on on the Tories. Um, so yeah, and, and that's I think where where they're at at the moment. Yeah, I mean, un- unsurprising at the end of the day, given the weird coalition that the Brexit Party was founded on, uh, and the fact that it's a business party in the sense that it's based on a corporate model rather than a, a representative de- yeah. democratic model. Um, so, yeah, fuck off. Yeah, there's, no, there's no membership. There's no, it's entirely, it's found, I mean, it is not just founded as a corporate model. I mean, it is literally a business in the sense that it doesn't have any kind of um, democratic constitution or member control over the leadership. It's entirely the creature of Richard Tice and Nigel Farage, the leadership at the top. And so, you know, I mean, it's it's obviously an important point that you could hardly expect such a party for it to be in a position to actually um, uh, make democratic, you know, uh, initiate democratic restructuring of British politics, given the way that it was internally configured. So to that extent, it was predictable the way it's turned out. Right. So let's move on 
to what's at stake and what might happen. Um, I think a lot of the discussion, the smarter discussion and, and things that you guys uh, yourselves have argued um, is the fact that this might be a very important realignment um, in certain seats. For example, we already saw hints of this uh, last election round in 2017, where uh, places which were younger and more middle class swung from being conservative seats to labor seats where, you know, for example, students would vote. And that points at uh, two, maybe three different um, categories under which it's worth examining this region, age and class. So, I mean, the class is obviously the big one, which I think we'll come to. So let's get region and age a little bit out of the way. George has already hinted at this. Uh, Labor is attracting much more uh, support in city centers, basically, uh, not just in London, but also, you know, Manchester, Liverpool, and so on. Um, while uh, age-wise, it's also tending to skew a lot younger, which does raise the question of, well, why? I mean, what is it about uh, the position of the young that makes them more uh, inclined to vote for Labour than the Tories, whereas for older voters, it's the opposite? Um, so maybe if you guys want to deal with those two questions first. Yeah, so I, I think just on the age um, point really quickly, the it is really striking how the age breakdown is is in favour of in favour of Labour um, or <clears throat> paints a picture of Labour being a party of, of younger voters. Um, and I, it, it raises a question as to what the, you know, is, is the long term strategy to sort of um, to have a, an age realignment or to basically have the older voters um, die off and, you know, it could be almost described as a, a long march through the graveyards that Labour um, <clears throat> uh, undertake as the older, more Tory voters um, die off. But yeah, I think it's it's a really key, I think that's that's what we'll, one of the things that we'll look, look back on this election for is is how the um, what what social categories were represented by which which of the parties and what does that say for the for I guess the class the class forces that that are com- competing in British society because it doesn't seem really particularly clear anymore that there's a, a straightforward class divide in British um, electoral politics if there ever was one or rather the political parties aren't able to to capture uh, any one class that they're kind of cut across a bit transversely um, by other factors. Would you agree with that? I mean, that labor is uh, still has a a base, a strong, still a a significant base in the working class, but it's particular sections of it. Um, and lots of other sections. Of yeah, the no, 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 it's turning, it's a middle class party. I mean, it's losing its leave seats. And that's not only happening in the north and the Midlands, but also here um, closer to home where I am. I've been hearing reports at the moment about how it's um, anecdotal, to be fair, but um, that in Kent constituencies, Labour voters um, are simply never going to vote Labour again, um, precisely over what's happened over Brexit. So the Brexit is... Um, or the Labour Party's response to Brexit is locking in longer-term trends of realignment. Um, again, it exposes and reinforces trends that were already there, and this is precisely what makes it so politically important as an event. Sure, but I mean, the, yeah, I the working the... class is not universally pro-leave. I mean, I think that would be a, a misconception. So there are still no, no, sections but it's of not, the younger, it's, more no, no, metropolitan but... working class who will vote labor especially and also more organized sections especially in the public sector and so on so the point is that the working class is it's not but again that's not this no no no. it's not universally pro-leave but you know it's the case that the poorer you were the more likely you were to support leave the less likely you were to be invested in the status quo which was remaining in the european union um and it's not as again you know i mean it's again it's trade union um the bureaucracy the leadership have tended to be um, pro-European Union, with the honourable exception of the RMT, the rail workers and maritime. Um, let me get this right. <laughs> what is the rail, rail, rail workers, workers maritime, and maritime and transport, transport union? Transport union is, um, you know, uh, famously anti-European Union. So it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a unvariegated picture, but nonetheless. Um, there's no getting away from the fact that Brexit was a working class vote. 
which isn't to say that every working class person supported leave, but nonetheless it was had a strong working class element to it. Not to mention also people who were uh, previously didn't vote came into the election in, or into the referendum. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not those people who voted in the referendum in 2016 didn't vote in the election of 2017, whether or not they will vote in this election. And it's about 1.2 million people. Um, so, and which is enough, obviously, to make a significant dent in any party's fortunes. So, um, it's yeah, a I, complicated picture, but I don't think, I think the broad trend of realignment is the Tories are becoming more working class, more northern. Labour Party is becoming more southern and more middle class. And that's the overall trend. It's not, it doesn't mean every single constituency or every single member of each party is that, but that's the direction of travel. I think um, Labour, in this debate last night around Labour Heartlands, there was one suggestion that uh, if you if you extend this this trend in in the future, is the Labour Heartland going to Heartlands going to be public sector workers essentially because there it seems like a lot of um, Labour's support comes from the public sector, and that of course is not a is not a geographical. Um, um, Nomination. <clears throat> it's not a, it's not a kind of community uh rootedness that the, the the idea of heartlands as much as probably isn't actually a useful term i think that was the consensus um that is definitely much more tied to, to regions and to, to specific parts of the country whereas obviously public sector work is much more dispersed um yeah i think maybe just another point here around sort of some international comparisons i don't think it's just britain that's that's seeing this um sort of um development on um on this this kind of is it is it the pm is it the professional managerial class who have managed to capture a certain um political party i think you could see this maybe as an explanation of what's happened in what happened in 2016 in the in the us there's and then I think it's an interesting question in in the UK: Who is it who who really runs the Labour Party, and what are their class interests, and what are the sorts of ideas that they want to see represented? Yeah, very good. Let's just close this off then with some possibilities and predictions. I mean, you might have a conservative uh, majority, and it'd be good if you, if all of you if you guys would just talk through what then happened in each of these cases. So a conservative majority, a hung parliament, or uh, that Labour becomes the largest party. Um, I don't think anyone's predicting an an absolute Labour majority. Um, But let's just talk through what each of these look like, what happens. I mean, the Conservatives win. Do do we see uh, Britain leaving the EU within the six months, you know, after the election? So my, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what George's prediction would be. My prediction, so, you know, judging with the recent kind of climb uh, in the Labour polls, you'd be looking at something like a 60 to 80 Tory majority, um, uh, assuming obviously that Labour don't make any further gains in the next couple of weeks. So if they had a 60 to 80 majority, um, they withdraw European, they withdraw Britain from the European Union formally in January, at the end of January, as Boris Johnson promised on the terms that he agreed um, earlier this year, which is to say that um, still significant oversight of the European Court of Justice and British internal politics through its oversight over EU citizens, a commitment to a, a reaching a trade deal by the end of 2020. A border in the Irish Sea, which is to say that Northern Ireland effectively is a um, economic integrate economically integrated into the European Union, and no longer economically integrated into the British Union, um, among other among other um, issues related to the withdrawal agreement. My prediction would be, with a 60 to 80 majority, that they'll extend the transition period. So. Um, the slogan of get Brexit done, which is the major Tory party slogan, is one of depoliticization. The whole sentiment of it is to put Brexit behind us. It's not about seizing the opportunity for constitutional, political, democratic or economic renewal. It's about um, returning to normalcy. And I think for that, um, I think they will realize they know, in fact, how much difficulty they will have negotiating a new trade agreement with the European Union. 
They'll have a strong enough majority to be able to vote through an extension to the transition period, safe in the knowledge that they won't have to um, confront another election for a while. So they'll be able to um, distance themselves from the pro-Brexit expectations of their voters. So a 60 to 80 Tory majority based on the current polls would, I think, lead to a um, formal withdrawal um, that Britain will um, enact the withdrawal agreement negotiated by Boris Johnson at the end of um, January, but will also plead for an extension um, to the transition period, which means that Britain will still be in a um, transitional phase, um, formally out of the European Union, but no longer a, still subject to alignment with the European Union, not able to shape its membership rules anymore, but that will stay in the European Union beyond the end of 2020. I think if it if um, <clears throat> there's a hung parliament, which seems less likely, um, but not impossible, um, then what I would say is the most likely outcome there is that you would have essentially a, a Remain alliance, which would be led by uh, led by Labour, and basically Corbyn's head might be the price um, for this that the that the Lib Dems might might demand, um, and then that. I think would be a would be I mean if the Tory scenario is isn't isn't incredible that they're, they're obviously they're conservatives they don't you know they have that that impulse of, of wanting to return to the status quo at least in in some respect and not really see a proper democratic renewal um, through in terms of what Brexit could have could have been um, I think the Remain alliance is not is not a, a victory I think it's a, it would be a bit of defeat for for democracy because we would we would have a second referendum i think labor would follow through on their their policy of renegotiating ripping up boris johnson's deal renegotiating um uh, a, a, a potential brexit in name only which would have closer or, or relatively close um links with the single market and customs union membership as well and then it would be that deal versus versus remain and then the, the uh, conference Labour would decide uh, which of the two to, to campaign for and I think in that situation it'd be quite conceivable that Remain uh, would win but obviously the, the fact of a second referendum itself would, would be suboptimal so I think <clears throat> I think those are the two main possible trajectories with the first being which was what Phil was talking about being more likely than than the second um, and and neither of them are perhaps particularly palatable I mean, the, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a hung parliament, say, with um, a slender majority for the Tories, uh, and then maybe Labour trying to run a minority government as, um, uh, or some kind of fractious coalition with the SNP and the Liberal Democrats on the understanding that they have a second referendum, something like a 1920s Ramsay MacDonald scenario for Labour would be... Um, uh, tremendously, in, tremendously unstable, disruptive. Um, not to mention as well that you would have a, you know, like as George has said, you would have in all likelihood a se second referendum would be the, the uh, would be the condition, and that would be a tremendous setback um, for British democracy. Another plebiscite and membership of the European Union would remain on the ballot paper, would be a tremendous setback for um, democracy. And we think that Labour's plans for a new green industrial revolution, as well as uh, very important policies on labour rights, uh, would not be able to be seen through by a, a labour-led coalition. Uh, good. Well, it wouldn't good. be a coalition, though, would it? Because it would be some kind of, you know, loose um, minority government with um, a deal with the SNP and the Liberal Democrats. The Greens might get one, maybe two MPs. I mean, you know, so I mean, the green industrial thing won't be so important. So it just won't be a government that will be able to put through its promises of economic renewal. Not to mention the fact, and we haven't said this so far, but so many of their policies would be compromised by membership of the European Union, which they're still committed to effectively. And attempts to say um, nationalize, to take over the um, no railway network and to put that into government control as a public monopoly would snarl up the a Labour government in the European Court of Justice for um, years, you know. So 
it's um, I don't the the prospect of the policies that Labour are promising is just not it's not credible or realistic. And the more effusive and dramatic and sweeping and bold they seem, um, without a commitment to Brexit, the less convincing they are. Yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of make you realise that the the real radicalism, as always from, from the socialist point of view, is precisely in working class self-government. And, and that comes through democracy, as Tony Benn put it, you know, you get, you get the democracy first mm-hmm. and the socialist policies come come second. And I think, you know, we can talk for, probably for quite a while about <clears throat> sort of the, the way Labour, that, that mindset, um, particularly amongst left liberal Labour members, that mindset towards politics. But it seems quite clear to me that the the working class are not seen as as agents of political change, but rather recipients of, of charity. The state becomes, in Richard Tuck's phrase, the armed wing of Oxfam. And it's about protecting people and <clears throat> and some very real material gains um which i think are imp- are important but that's the you know the real radicalism comes through i guess uh, showing people how important and how powerful their vote can be and how much society can be changed through political action and that if you if you back away from and yeah brexit if you back away from that um that possibility then you can't achieve the sort of mass mobilisation that a really transformative political project requires. All right, great stuff. Uh, We'll leave it here. We're going to be back with a post-election episode uh, running through what has actually happened. And uh, and being honest about, uh, well, I haven't ventured any predictions. Um, I can exempt myself from that responsibility. Um, I'm in Brazil. What do I know? and uh and and taking george and phil to task for <laughs> what they've predicted so we'll uh, all that to look forward to but before then we are going to have our 100th episode this is episode 99 uh it's a patrons only episode we're gonna have a f- free episode our 100th episode which is the 30 years since 1989 we have invited a whole bunch of our favorite guests to reflect on what the most important trends are since 1989 and really what the nature and prospects of for the end of history and end of end of history actually are. So tune in for that. That'll be on the 10th of December that that comes out. Uh, And that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.